0: and the hope that we have ahead of us. Now, dear friends, these attacks are nothing new. If you survey scripture, these attacks are the same methods that the enemy has used since day one. Since day one. They don't change. From Adam and Eve to Jesus Christ our Lord to us today, these attacks and these methods are new. They may look a little different, but at their core, they're all the same. And so, if you would, just turn with me. It's always good to be looking at Scripture. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and let's take a moment to look at the temptation of Jesus, and we'll see how he tempted Jesus and attacked him, and compare that to Adam and Eve. Now, granted, as we look through these uh, temptations, granted, they're not necessarily standalone. They all kind of weave in together, but we'll attempt to look at them uh, individually. But the first temptation that we see in Jesus is the The doubting who God is and doubting who you are. As we read through the text of Matthew chapter 4 and see the temptation of Jesus, we see that the devil is tempting Jesus much like he did Eve back in the garden when the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He tempted Eve to doubt God's character and his integrity and his nature. So let's see comparatively how he tempts Jesus. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, in this part of the story, we see the tempter tempting Jesus to doubt who he was and the fact that he says, if you are the son of God. And so, friends, how many times have we had that whisper in our ear? If you are a son or daughter of God, you would not do blank or you would do blank and you know, so often we hear that whisper of the enemy in our ears, seeking to create doubt and confusion and discouragement about who we are in Jesus. And so we see this also in the fact that he tempts Jesus to doubt who God is and his role of provider. We know that in Scripture, one of the names of God is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And so, you know, friends, we must understand that he is seeking. For us to doubt God's role as provider in our lives. You know, how often do we you know, seek security elsewhere in our 401ks or our jobs or wherever they may be? We seek security in so many different places except for the one place that we can truly have it. And that is in God. And so may we also trust in who God has declared us to be and who he has declared himself to be as well. Jesus trusted in who God is, and so should we. And who are we? As we have seen so clearly, we, dear friends, are a chosen, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King who are awaiting an inheritance prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. That's who we are. That's who he has declared us to be. The enemy seeks to destroy that doubt. Or destroy that with doubt and confusion but moving along we see the second temptation here and the fact that uh, doubting God's word in Genesis the devil tempted Eve to doubt God's word as well when the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die the devil says that God's word is wrong once again doubting his character and his nature And so in the second temptation of Jesus, we see much the same way that the devil is tempting Jesus to doubt God's word as well. Listen to what happens in verse 5 of chapter 4. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, once again, tempting him to doubt who he was, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So, what does the devil say to Jesus? He says, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Like I said, tempting him to doubt who he was. Tempting him to doubt what God's Word says. And so we must understand that the devil knows God's Word extremely well. He knows it very well, but yet, He is always using it as a lie. His his word about God's word is always right there with God's truth ever so closely, but it is not true at all. And so Jesus, he responds to him by saying, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus rebukes him and corrects the devil by clarifying what God's word truly says. So this should be a little bit of a a hint to us in the fact that we need to know God's Word extremely well ourselves, right? We need to know how to defend against God's Word. We should be able to defend our faith. Ignorance is not an option. We need to know God's Word exactly, and we need to apply it correctly. And thankfully, dear friends, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit that allows us to do this. And then the third temptation is doubting God's plan. In Genesis, the devil tempted Eve to doubt God's plan back in the garden by simply saying, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's plan for us as humanity was to rule over his creation and to have dominion over his creation. But his plan was never for us to be like God. You know, much the same way, the devil tempts Jesus, does he not? He tempts Jesus the same way when he tells Jesus, and when we read that in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Well, what was God's plan for Jesus? God's plan for Jesus was to enter into the creation which he created himself, To humble himself to live that perfect life and to die to die on a rugged cross to die on a terrible cross of a terrible death and his plan was for him to raise on the third day this was God's plan for Jesus the devil tempted Jesus to shortcut that to bypass the way of the cross in much the same way that he tempts us So often we are tempted to take the shortcut, take the easy path, avoid the way of the cross. But that is not what scripture would tell us. Scripture would tell us that we must take up our cross and follow Christ as he did. So often, guys, we're tempted to doubt God's plan for our life. But what we must do is we must rest and trust that God's ways are higher than our ways. You know, to be confessional with you this morning, uh, me, very often I am tempted to doubt. You know, so often I am tempted to have this discouragement in so many ways. This is a very real weakness of mine. So much so to the point of depression many times. You know, too often I allow the circumstances around me to dictate what I am feeling rather than trusting in God and His Word. And when we remove the facts of God's word from our feelings, we get fiction. However, when we allow the facts of God's word to drive our our feelings and emotion, we get faith. And faith, as Hebrews 11 tells us, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so we as believers and followers of Jesus, we have no need to have doubt and discouragement. We have no need to have this confusion. We simply need to be confident in Christ. Because of what Jesus has done for us, not what we do, we can be confident in him. Now listen to how Jesus rebukes the devil here. He says in verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And so when we are tempted, we simply need to resist the devil. Eric talked about this to some extent a couple weeks ago, and the fact that resisting the devil simply means the fact that we are so consumed with Christ. When we are so just amazed by him, that as we draw near to him, He is so much more to us than the pesky little darts of the enemy. Those things pale in comparison to who he is. That is how we truly resist the devil. As James 4 would tell us, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So resist the devil by drawing near to Christ. Grow closer to him in your walk. And you will truly resist the devil. Now, by all means, friends, we do fail. We do doubt. I have doubt. Sometimes I am discouraged. Many times I am discouraged. But when we do, thankfully we have a merciful high priest on our behalf who intercedes for us. Hebrews four fifteen states, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And listen to this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So once again, we can be confident not in ourselves, but in Christ. Because we are confident in Him, we can trust Him. We can have faith in him in this time of spiritual warfare. And so when we do that, we're able to fend off the attacks of the enemy, which are doubt and discouragement. So that brings us to our next question. What are we protecting? What are we protecting? The attack is doubt and discouragement. What are we protecting? Our confidence in our salvation. To fight off the attacks of the enemy, we need to understand truly what is salvation. We need to know the facts of what salvation is and seek to be amazed by what God has done and is going to do in our lives. And this will fend off those attacks. So, what is salvation? You know, growing up, I considered that salvation. Was that moment when I walked down the aisle of an evangelistic service? And uh, by all means, that when if that is genuine and true, that is by all means a true aspect of salvation. But that does not encapsulate everything that salvation is. That in my you know weak understanding of what salvation is, that's what I thought. That that's what it means to be saved. That's only a small part. You know, we must understand. That, ele- or that salvation is election to glorification. Salvation has a past, present, and future aspect to it. And so by understanding that more, we can have a truer and greater confidence in what our salvation is. So let's look at this real quick. And let's survey this. So from a past aspect of salvation, what are we looking at? Well, the first thing that we know and understand is the fact that you have election. You know, we've talked about this to great extent. I won't belabor the point, but we've talked about this to a great extent in the very first verses of this book. Election is God's choice of a people to be saved. Ephesians 1 would tell us this very clearly. And this election by God took place from before the foundation of the world, before we did anything good or bad. Thus, it was based upon his choice, not ours. However, we must understand that by God choosing to do this, God had to lay forth a plan. This plan is what we would consider the predestination. Election is God's choice, but the predestination is the preassigned destination marked out for those whom he chose. Simply put, God made a choice. God made a plan. Now, how does that plan get executed? That plan gets executed by the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how God gathers his elect from the four corners of this world. That's how he does it. It is through the foolishness of preaching that he does that. This gospel call goes out to everyone, every single person on the face of this planet. Everyone. However, we must understand that it is God who makes that call effective, in a dead person's heart now God gives that inward call of that dead person as he gives them new life he gives them a regenerated heart he gives them a new birth as Jesus sat and talked with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 how many times did we hear it you must be born again you must be born again to the dead person the things of God mean nothing It's like throwing a rock on that floor. It just bounces off. It means nothing. But to the person whom God is giving new life, that is like a seed that is falling in fertile ground, in which God gives it life, and new life grows. Now, as God gives this inward call, we must understand that we have a responsibility here. We must respond in repentance and faith. This is our conversion when we place our trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done and not in ourselves, and when we repent of our sins, which means we turn from sin and turn to God, this is repentance. These things go hand in hand. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. They both must take place. And when they do, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we are then by a just God declared not guilty your sins are forgiven and God does an amazing thing and he takes Jesus' righteousness and he takes it and he places it upon us and he takes our sin and he places it upon Jesus this is what the Old Testament Day of Atonement was representing and God declares us not guilty that's an amazing thing When God looks at us and says, your sins are forgiven. Forgiven. And he sees, when he looks at us, because of that great exchange, he sees Jesus and not us. And I don't know about you, but I want to be seen under Jesus and not myself. I have much greater confidence in that. Now, once we do that, these are all past aspects of salvation. For the believer who is here with us this morning, these are things that have taken place in the past. But there's a present aspect of salvation as well, which is what we call our sanctification. And so, when we are converted, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are, by all means, positionally sinless before a holy God. However, We are not sinless in practical terms. And so as we grow as Christians, as we know God's more and are obedient to that which we are uh, shown in his word, and as we walk and grow in our affections and love for Jesus, we won't be sinless, but we certainly should sin less as we grow. Which leads us to our next topic, which is the future aspect of salvation. Salvation which would be our glorification. And glorification is that wonderful time in the future when we will be with Jesus. And it is the time that we as believers should be most looking forward to, what we should be thinking about most, especially in times of duress and doubt and discouragement and persecution. This is what we should be most looking forward to. And so understanding that there are these three aspects of salvation from a past present and future aspect we could as believers say that rightly that i have been saved from the penalty of sin i am being saved from the power of sin and then one day i will be saved from the presence of sin and now regarding the attacks of the enemy he wants to attack every one of these aspects of salvation we're to put on the helmet of salvation, and he wants to attack every one of these aspects. He wants to make us doubt the past aspect of our salvation. As he doubt wants us to doubt our election. Well, how do we defend that? Peter tells us to make our calling and election sure. He wants us to doubt our conversion. And say, did you really, truly trust Christ? Did you really trust him? Well, how do we defend that? Well, ask the question, am I trusting him now? Because if you are not trusting him now, please do not rest in a one-time superficial decision that was made once, but there's no heart change. There's no change in life, and you're not truly trusting in him now. Are you trusting in him now is the question. He wants to attack us from the present aspect of our salvation and the fact that he makes us want to stumble and to become less like Jesus and more like the world. And as stated, oftentimes, guys, we are going to fail. We won't be sinless until that glorification aspect, but we should certainly sin less. But in the meantime, we are going to mess up. We are going to doubt. We are going to have discouragement. We're going to sin. However, in the midst of that discouragement, when we do sin and we are, as rightly so, convicted of our sin rest and trust in this that jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith and what god starts god will finish and to not trust that is to bring a claim against god's character and then finally there is the future aspect of salvation how does the enemy attack this how does he attack our hope in the future aspect of salvation? Well, as the Lord tarries, as we anxiously await the return of Christ, and as he tarries year after year, we can become doubtful about his return. We can become discouraged about his return, and that can be very disheartening sometimes. However, What we must do is rest and trust in those promises of God in which he says that he has gone away to prepare a place for us. We must trust in his character and know that what he says he will do. We must rest and trust in that day that he will return. Imagine this. Imagine that you are a soldier fighting in World War II. And in the midst of that war... If I were to come to you and say, hey, you know, the enemy is on the run on the eastern front. The enemy is on the run in the Pacific. We are making advancements. This war will one day soon be over. What would that do for you? It would instill a confidence in you in which you would fight harder than you've ever fought before. You would hold on. However, if I were to come to you inversely and say, I don't know when this war is going to end. You've taken on heavy casualties. This war is, just continues to drag on. What would that do for you? <laughs> it would bring about much discouragement and despair. And as the war goes on, you would certainly give up and give in. Well, much the same way the enemy wants us to doubt the future aspect of our salvation. He wants us to think this is never going to end. As we take these blows day in and day out, and dear friends, make no mistake, if you're in this battle, if you're a child of God, you are facing, you are facing spiritual warfare. As we seek to be obedient, you will face it. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. When you tell God, yes, I will do this, I guarantee you there will be some spiritual warfare. As our brother Ivan here was baptized this morning and took a major step of obedience, I dare say that leading up to this moment, I don't know, but I'm guessing there was some pretty heavy spiritual warfare. As in the case with any of you all, as you seek to serve God, to be obedient to his calling upon your life, whether it be uh, to share the gospel with someone, whether it be to go on a mission trip, whether it be to teach a Sunday school lesson to some kids, I guarantee you that there is some level of spiritual warfare going on there, and sometimes that can get heavy. And as it goes on, day in and day out, it can get very discouraging. Our hearts can become to sink, it can come to sink, and and be so heavy. He does this to discourage us. And all he's doing simply is delaying what is his ultimate, inevitable, imminent destruction. So, we must ask our third question. Why are we protecting what we are protecting? So, the attack of the enemy is doubt and discouragement. What are we protecting? Specifically, the future aspect of salvation. And why are we protecting that? because confidence leads to hope. The future aspect of salvation is mostly, most likely what Paul is talking about here. He's likely not talking about the past or even the present aspect of salvation because why would you put the helmet on if you're talking about being saved? No, you, you are a saved person and this is something that you need to look forward to. But most likely what Paul is referring to here is the future aspect of salvation. Paul wants us as believers to be looking ahead. He wants us to focus on the hope of heaven. And hope as defined in the Bible does not equate to some sort of wishful thinking. Hope as defined in the Bible equates to a confident expectation. You know, dear friends, if I may for just a moment, you know, Too often, I think, as evangelicals, we can tend to push eschatology to the side. Eschatology is the doctrine of last things. And too often, I think, we push that to the side because we're afraid of being wrong. Because many people have been wrong in the past. Many times people have laid claims to Scripture that were never truly there. Or someone lays a thought process on that. that that's the only thing that we focus on. Our job is to focus on the whole counsel of God, from Genesis to Revelation. However, dear friends, if we are failing to talk about last things, this is just a fact. We are neglecting a very, very large part of the Bible. It's just that simple. There's entire books that are dedicated to last things. Mark chapter 13 Matthew chapter 24 entire chapters of a gospel that is committed to the doctrine of last things and so the Bible is not ambiguous about this and so may we venture to look at that may we consider that and consider hey there, Jesus is coming back we should have a knowledge about that and an excitement about that that's good and right and may we seek to study that. And just consider this for just a moment. Oftentimes when we talk about last things or the return of Christ, many people back off because they're like, eh, that's more for the more mature believer. You know, that's not for me. I'm a baby believer. It's not really for me. However, consider this. The church of Thessalonica was only months old. Literally only months old. And listen to what Paul tells them. Consider this. 1 Thessalonians 4.13-18. Paul says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Two things, informed and encouraged. Paul wants us to be informed of these things, and he wants us to be encouraged by it. These people, these believers at Thessalonica were only months old, and a very important thing to them was the doctrine of last things. They thought that they were caught up in the great day of the Lord, which equates to the things that we read about in Revelation, where God is pouring out His wrath on this earth. However, Paul wanted them to not be uninformed. He wanted them to be informed. And he wanted them to be encouraged about the last days, not discouraged by it. Paul continues in First Thessalonians 5, verse 8, when he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God is not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wanted these Thessalonians to put on that same armor that he was speaking to the Ephesians about, which was the same armor that he considered back in Isaiah. We need to put on that same hope. We need to put on that same hope of the future aspect of salvation. This is what the enemy wants to remove from us. The enemy wants to remove our hope of this future salvation. This should be something that is encouragement to the believer to know that one day Jesus is going to come back. This is not going to be like this forever. This is not a perpetual state. Things will one day change. He has already won the victory for us. It is that future aspect of salvation that keeps us looking forward, that keeps us hopeful and confident. It is that future aspect of salvation that keeps us fighting the fight, keeps us running the race, that keeps our hands to the plow each and every day. And then, continuing on in 1 Corinthians 15, just using these as illustrations that this is pretty important to Paul, So it should be to us as well. But Paul's words to the the Corinthians were somewhat of the same. As he speaks to them in uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to them because these believers there at Corinth were doubting if there was a resurrection at all. They were discouraged about a future hope at all. However, listen to what he tells them as he goes into a full-blown treatise here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 16-19, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who are also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Basically, what Paul is saying here is, is if this is it, our faith is a joke. This is a waste of time. And it is. If this is it. I've considered the Sadducees in uh, Jesus' time. Of course, we know that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And that's why they're sad, you see. so. <laughs> but uh, they didn't believe in that. And so there was such a, a lack of hope there on their behalf. And so we should have that hope. However, our faith is not futile. Our faith is not a joke. Listen to what Paul continues on to say. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive but each in his own order. And listen to this. I don't mean to trivialize or minimize eschatology. I know there are a lot of nuances that we could probably spend days and weeks and months and years upon, but this is a bullet point that Paul gives us. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming those who, have, who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so let me bullet point this for you. Number one, Christ is raised from the dead. That's happened. Two, at a point in time in the future, those who belong to Christ are going to be raised as well. And as we read in First Thessalonians, those who are dead will rise first. Then those who are alive at the time will rise second. Then, third, Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after he destroys every rule and authority, meaning simply this, that Christ is going to have an earthly reign on this earth. Christ comes back. Those who are his are raised to new life, a glorified body. We are here with him, reigning on earth for a period of time. We can debate how long that is at another time, but simply point put, there will be an earthly reign of Christ here on this earth in which so many promises that he's made will be fulfilled. Then the last enemy being death is destroyed. New heaven, new earth, eternal state. It's pretty simple, really. I mean, we don't have to do backflips over God's word and put a lot of things in there that are not necessary, but we there's enough there, dear friends, that he has disclosed to us that we should have a great deal of hope, a great deal of confidence about what is going to happen. The doctrine of last things, the doctrine of our future aspect of our salvation, it should be a comfort, not a discouragement for the believer. because We know this because, or we should have this confidence because of what he has declared. We know who's in control. We know what's going to happen. And we know why it's going to happen. And so, by knowing that, it should provide a confidence for us in the midst of those times of doubt and discouragement. So, why do we protect our confidence in the future aspect of salvation? Because it produces hope. It produces hope. Romans 3 5 through 5, 3 through 5 says this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope purifies us. Hope purifies us. 1 John 3, 3 And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies us. As he is pure, it anchors us. In the storms of life, it anchors us. Hebrews 6 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Having hope gets us through the wear and the tear of this world, this fallen world. It gets us through. When you have a chronic disease that exhausts you day in and day out, we can have that future hope that one day we will be free from that pain. When we experience the loss of a loved one, we can have confidence and hope that one day the final enemy, as we read there in 1 Corinthians 15, will be destroyed. Death. It will be destroyed and we will say, where's your sting? And then our anxieties of this world, when these anxieties just overwhelm us and we're so overwhelmed by the cares and the concerns of this world and they weigh us down day in and day out, we can look for a day when all things will be made new because they're going to be. God's going to recreate everything. And then finally, when we are persecuted for our faith, we can have confidence and hope that one day a just God will bring justice. He's going to do that. He will vindicate. So, what is the attack? Doubt, discouragement. What are we protecting? Our confidence in the future aspect of salvation. Why are we protecting it? Because that leads to hope. And hope purifies us And it anchors us in the storm. And so, in conclusion today, how do we have hope? How do we have hope? As the blows of Satan's hammer beat against us day in and day out, and we are tempted to have doubt and discouragement, how do we have this hope? Well, we remember. We remember. We remember that in this life, we will have tribulation. We will have pain. We will have death. This should not surprise us when it happens. Jesus tells us in John 16, 33, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We're going to experience this trouble and this tribulation. And when we do, we groan inwardly. Romans 8 tells us, And not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience so we remember that we will have this and we need to have patience then we remember We remember who you are. Who you are. You are an adopted son or daughter of God. That is your identity. You are God's. Remember who you are. And that we must understand that we have an inheritance prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. That we do not lay up our treasures here on this earth. We look to that inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. And then finally, we remember. We remember Jesus. Above and beyond all things, we remember Jesus, what he has done, who he is. Look at his track record, look at his faithfulness in your life. And remember that. You know, the night before the crucifixion, as Jesus gathered with the disciples, He was telling them he was going to die. And in that moment, his friends were filled with doubt and discouragement as their idea of a political king was just shattered. Doubt and discouragement started to creep in. And Jesus asked them to remember him. Listen to what he says in Luke 22. He says, And when the hour came, he reclined at a table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, in remembrance of me and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood so now as we come to a time of closing we need to remember Jesus we're going to take a moment we're going to come to the table and let us remember what he has done And let us repent of our sin of doubt and discouragement and remember Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins so that we can have hope. If you are here this morning, I pray, Lord, I pray, friends, that you would turn to the Lord. If you're a believer and you're here and you are struggling with doubt and discouragement, rest in him trust in him. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you have no hope. You have no hope. And I pray that you would have that hope this morning. So let us pray.